Good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like for you to continue your worship with me by finding Jeremiah chapter 17. Like many of you, I have enjoyed so much about this spring, including the endless amounts of pollen. So you please dwell with me and forgive me for the inconvenience of my voice not being at its normal level of strength. Uh, I'll do my best uh, to get through this without too much uh, sniffling or stuffiness, hacking. Uh, but I would like for you to remember with me that in our weakness he's strong and that the goodness of God's word is his word. You know, what keeps me going in my role as your pastor is recognizing I am not charged with trying to tell you how to live your life. I am still very much learning how to live my life. The role is to simply take God's Word and explain it to you and myself, and then together, as a church family, we'll do our best to live it out, recognizing that it is He who is in us that lives and moves and wills us into the people that He's called us to be. We're in a sermon series called Rework. We grab that word from a passage we will actually deal with next week over in the 18th chapter of the book of Jeremiah where Jeremiah is told to go to the potter's house and to watch the potter turn the clay. And in Jeremiah 18.4, we will dive into it next week as I said, the Bible says in the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Of course, this is one of the most beautiful pictures in the Old Testament of God taking something broken and lifeless, God taking something that requires reshaping and reworking it into something that is presentable. And throughout this series, we've seen several ways in which the Lord reworks, recalibrates, refocuses, resets, reminds. One of those is the subject I'd like the privilege of preaching to you about this morning. What comes to your mind when you hear the word Sabbath? When you think about your earliest memories of the Christians of your past, if you have the privilege and the blessing of having been raised around Christians, you know our church has first-generation Christians. We have people who were in our church here in the deep south in the buckle of the Bible Belt who were not raised in Christian homes and who have come to faith in Jesus and are the first generation in their family to follow Christ. That gets me so excited to watch the Lord write a redemptive narrative across the pages of their years, their days, and their moments. But many of you, on some level and in some way, were raised in and around the Christian tradition of your childhood. You might not have been raised in a Baptist church, a non-denominational church, a Presbyterian church, a Lutheran church, Methodist, Anglican, from the Catholic tradition, but you have some experience with Christianity. And in that, you also have some experience with the varying views of the Sabbath. If you're here today and you're in your 60s, when you were growing up, you remembered, and if you're older than that, you as well, anybody here over the age of 60, you remember nothing happened on Sunday but church. Wasn't nowhere to go eat, couldn't get, get gas, couldn't buy a gallon of milk, nothing happened. 
And then as things begin to change in our society, some things happen. I remember as a little boy going with my father to a pastor's associational meeting, and this group of pastors were mobilizing to fight against alcohol sales on Sunday in the little community I was raised in. There are certain pockets of our own state where you still cannot buy alcohol on Sundays. These are called blue laws, and they're on the books. And if you're raised in the deep south, you know that there were varying views of the Sabbath. Some of you couldn't cut grass on Sunday afternoon. Others of you couldn't go swimming on Sunday afternoon. My dad always said I couldn't go hunting on Sunday evenings when we didn't have service, but I could go fishing. I don't know what the exegetical basis of that was, but I distinctly remember one afternoon about four o'clock, I caught a massive catfish. I took it home and my father was headed to the evening service, and so late that evening, after the evening service, he was outside on the carport helping me skin this catfish. And from that point on, I couldn't fish on Sundays. My mother was not allowed to play cards on Sundays. Others of you were taught early on in your life, well, Sunday is the Sabbath. It's the Lord's Day. When we think about the Sabbath, there tend to be two extremes we live between. One is unbiblical legalism. You are measured by your church attendance, and somehow, even though it's not necessarily biblical, your church attendance is equated to your Sabbath day observance. The other end is undisciplined laziness. And if I'm being honest with you, this is the direction of the Christian culture that we live in. But somewhere in the midst of those two extremes, there has to be a biblically correct, responsible way to understand this subject and apply it to our lives. I will never forget a Thursday night in March of 2020. I was at the Tiger River Park. I had just dropped off one of my sons at Little League practice. I walked over to a pavilion, sat down on a picnic table, and entered into a conference call with every staff member or every one of our pastors on our staff, and then our leaders, and then several folks within our church who are medical uh, experts, physicians, and those who deal in public health, and we were all watching the unfolding of a nationwide reaction to the first pandemic of my life, known as then coronavirus. We switched at some point over the last year and began referring to it as COVID-19. Of course, you do realize that's the acronym, COVID, coronavirus identified in the year 2019, COVID-19. And so COVID-19. And I remember on that call, we really began discussing how we were going to adjust Sunday morning and disinfect door handles and space people out. And in a matter of about a 45-minute call, through the wisdom of godly men and women on that call, we came to the determination, like many churches did, that we had to shut down. And we had to go completely online. In fact, we were one of the first large churches in the state of South Carolina to make the announcement. And there was about a 72 our period where I wondered, have we jumped the gun? And then I found many of the churches followed suit, and I since talked with many of those pastors, and I'm grateful for the opportunity and the wisdom that God gave us to do that. It almost gave permission to other churches to do that. And we went completely online, 
And for 14 weeks, every Wednesday, I came into this room. I watched those precious people on our worship team rehearse. And then they would record the worship set. We'd hit pause. And, and, and then I would come out. And the blinking red light would come on. And I would preach to an empty room with a camera in there. And it was horrible. There's no way to tell a joke. You don't know who's laughing. You know, I think all my stuff's funny. You don't. There's no way to tell a joke. There's no way to interact with people. Preaching is incarnational. This is one of the reasons why as we branch out and launch campuses, we're not going to do it with simulcast. We want a living, breathing shepherd who Mary berries, loves people, preaches God's word. If you're going to be a shepherd, you ought to smell like sheep. You ought to love your people. And so I think it's important for people to be a part of life preaching if their health allows them to. And, and, and that meant for 14 weeks on Sunday, for the first time in my life, I was not in church. I felt like the biggest reprobate. I was lost. And unlike you, I had to try to worship at my house, sitting with my family as we watched me. <laughs> you want to know how odd that is for one of your kids to go, you know, he really wasn't clear on that second point there. <laughs> go to your room. You don't get to worship today. And that 14 weeks for our church, and I'm so thankful we were able to open back up at the Open Star Center and then Father's Day, and then it's been so good to see people coming back. But that 14 weeks for me and for many of you as I've talked with you and for many Christians worldwide, it's really given us a deeper appreciation for how much we need this time each week to come into the house of the Lord. We just got through singing about it, singing about it to come into the house of the Lord and to focus and to worship with our brothers and sisters. And I'll be quite honest with you, when I came to this passage months ago as I outlined this book and I got to this passage on the Sabbath, I don't pick the subjects, Jeremiah does, I thought, ooh, this is going to be my sermon to scratch out a spot and pitch a fit and tell all you online people, you need to come on back if you're not worried about your health. If you're watching online and you're not worried about your health, you do need to come on back. We love you. We miss you. If you're making a decision to worship online because of that's the best decision for your health or because of physical limitations, we commend you, we celebrate that, and we love you. But if you've fallen into the convenience of enjoying being in your loose-fitting pajama pants and your own gourmet-made coffee and you're sitting on your couch with your hair being a mess and you're watching, remember, our cameras go both ways. We're tired of it. We... We need you to shower. We need you to fix yourself up. We need you to come on, come on back in. When you make a decision to not be in church out of convenience, laziness, apathy, you rob three people or three persons of a blessing. Number one, you rob the Lord of a blessing. The book of Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering together as some in their habit of doing. God intends for his people to be together you also rob yourself of a blessing there is no substitute for live worship for being in the room all of you at some point in your life have watched the Super Bowl on a TV screen if for nothing more if you're not a football fan you've watched it for advertisements but if you were given free tickets to go you'd bypass your TV in a heartbeat because there's something about being there live and being in the experience but thirdly, you rob the rest of us of a blessing because sometimes the greatest word from God a person receives at church is not from the pastor. It's that encouraging conversation in the concourse 
It's when someone pulls you aside and prays for you. It's when they walk up to you and say, I, I know you're going through a struggle. I want you to know you've been on my heart today. See, if you sit at home out of convenience, you rob other people of the blessing of your own spiritual gifts. And so, honestly, when I got to this passage in my exegesis, my study, the work of studying this passage, I, I really was wrestling with that. And then I began to study it. And it really convicted me about our temptation to take any passage and apply it to what we won't say. In essence, what Jeremiah does in Jeremiah chapter 17 is he asked the people of the Old Testament, the Hebrews, to rediscover the Sabbath. And so I'd like to do that with you this morning. I want you to walk out of here in just a few moments, and due to my voice and my strength, it will just be a few moments, I want you to walk out of here in just a few moments with a renewed sense of appreciation, understanding, and application of the Sabbath in your life. And this is what you're going to find if you'll go with me. You're going to find that this is not a journey about a ritual, a regulation, an obligation, or a day of the week. This is a journey about the posture of your heart in relationship to your love of the King. And when we begin to unpack it, we come to Jeremiah 17, verse 19. The first thing we see in this three-part sermon is Sabbath command. Sabbath command. Notice what happens here in verse 19. Thus said the Lord to me, Go and stand in the people's gates, by which the kings of Judah enter, by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem. And say, Hear the word of the Lord. You kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates, thus says the Lord. Just pause right there. Jeremiah is told, go to a high traffic area and talk to everybody. Talk to everybody. Make sure everybody hears it. Make sure the kings hear it and the council hears it and the officials hear it and all the inhabitants hear it. And here's what they are to hear beginning in verse 21. Thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives. That's also can be translated souls. Take care of your souls. Take care for the sake of your lives. And do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy, as I commanded your fathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive the instruction. Most of you who are attending today have heard some preacher or small group leader or Sunday school teacher teach you about the Old Testament law of the Sabbath. This is nothing new for Jeremiah. He is not asked to give a new law to the people of God. He is told to go to the people of God, people of God who are being rebellious, who are being stiff-necked, and remember the Sabbath, to keep the seventh day holy. Where do we get this from? Well, let's start with the law. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, when God is establishing the Hebrews as his covenant people, he brought them out of Egyptian captivity, and he gave them the law. This is what we find in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. 
And we know about the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments is the commandment about the Sabbath. Fleshed out in Deuteronomy 5, verses 14 through 15, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock. The writer goes on, Moses, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. It goes on to say, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Don't miss two parts of this. One, we often have been raised to believe Sabbath is for church. I'll get to that in a few moments. But before we ever begin to think about proactively going to a house of worship, we need to recognize that the two primary commands around the Sabbath were to stop, work, rest, and remember what God had done for you. Those are the two primary things. See, so often what we tend to do is we substitute those commands to stop, rest, and refocus with, okay, now this is my day to do for God. I do for my family, I do for my husband, I do for my wife, I do for my children. I do for my employer and my employees. Oh, today's the day I do for God. But that actually flies in the face of the Old Testament teaching of what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath was a day of rest that was to set the people of God apart from the rest of the world. Now, interestingly, even though the law of the Sabbath was not given until Moses, remember lots of people came before Moses and before Jeremiah, people like Abraham and Job. Lots of people came before the time of Moses. And so before the law was given, the Ten Commandments, we recognized that the foundation of the rhythm of resting on the seventh day in the Old Testament is rooted in the example God set in the book of Genesis. In fact, in the creation account in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. It goes on to say, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. This was not a day God worked. This was a day God sat and oversaw his creation, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, theologically, I have to tell you, God doesn't need rest. He is an endless supply of power and strength. He did this to set an example to his creation and to set over his creation the order and formula for rhythm, which was a day of the week was to be set aside to recalibrate, be reworked, refocus, renewed, and reminded of the goodness of God. Now, Jeremiah is not the first prophet to have to tell the people of God, hey, you've been ignoring the Sabbath. A country preacher named Amos dealt with this centuries before Jeremiah. He said, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? Amos goes on to say, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make 
the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. Amos calls down the thunder and says, some of you can't wait for the Sabbath to be over because you want to make another dollar unfairly. You want to oppress the poor. You want to suppress those who are vulnerable and needy. And so we know this is not a new struggle. A generation of Christ followers who ignore and neglect the Sabbath are not anything new that God is surprised about. Even the people of the Old Testament struggled to remember what the Sabbath was about. This was a command by God given according to the order of creation. And in addition to the command, there are Sabbath consequences. Now, let me show you what those are. Look what the Bible says, beginning in verse 24. But if you listen to me, now why is he contrasting but if? Well, look at verse 23. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck, and they might not hear and receive instruction. So Jeremiah, under the inspiration of God, is speaking the words of God, saying, look, generations before wouldn't listen to me. If you listen to me, there's hope. What's the hope? Well, look what's going to happen when God's people honor the Sabbath in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. It's written there in verse 24. But if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates in the city on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do not work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the city shall be inhabited forever, and people shall come from cities of Judah and the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the Shephelah, from the hill country, from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and frankincense, bringing thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Notice the picture God is painting. He's saying, what do I want for Jerusalem? I want Jerusalem to prosper. I want it to be the center of power and authority. I want the throne of David to continue forevermore. I want people to do well. I want worship to happen. I want sacrifice to take place. And he ties all that into the Sabbath. He says, if you'll honor me, with the day of your week, I will honor you. Listen, there is a such thing as righteous suffering. We know the scripture is filled with examples of men and women who did the right thing and suffered. This is why we don't tell people, if you follow the Lord God with all your heart, your life will be free from struggles. Actually, the gospel is opposite. To stand for Christ is becoming more and more difficult, and it will be. It's not going to be any easier for our children as our world continues to spin further and further away from God's will. At the same time, we need to be careful not to balance that with the clear teaching in Scripture that there are certain principles God builds in, and he says, if you do this, I'll bless you. There'll be favor in your life. If you establish my rhythm for rest and worship, the consequences of it will be positive in your life. There'll be blessings and influence, and there'll be a sense of eternal communion with me, and you'll see sacrifice and worship multiply because of your influence. God had marked his people. Those are the positive consequences. Now, thankfully, because God is a teacher, he gives the negative consequences. He says, all these things are going to happen if you'll honor the Sabbath. But if you don't, look what the Scripture says, beginning in verse 26, or excuse me, rather verse 27. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, 
And I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and shall not be quenched. The sermon started in a gate, the blessings come in a gate, and the curse comes in a gate. The place where people go in and go out, the place that represents growth and favor and prosperity, rule and reign of princes and kings and chariots. All that, God says, is going to be a busy display of my grace or it will be a place of destruction and fire. Now, if you go forward in the book, as we will over the next few months, you'll find that when Nebuchadnezzar does destroy the gates of Jerusalem, he does so by fire. It's so disastrous that there's an entire book of the Bible written to lament the destruction of Israel. It's called Lament Lamentations. That's what it's about. And so God made it very clear. Here's the command, and here are the consequences. Now here's where we get to the point of the sermon where we have to ask a question. I haven't said anything profound. Any basic commentary could teach you what I've just taught you. You may not have seen it organized that way, but many of you have been exposed to the fact that under the Jewish law, the seventh day of the week, Saturday, was to be a day of rest. A day where people did nothing but were with their families, focused on the Lord, offered worship and sacrifice to him. It's why our neighbors in our own community who are Orthodox Jews attended their synagogue services yesterday. But how does that apply to a Christian's life? Because remember that I told you those two extremes often get placed in the forefront. There are some who are unbiblically legalistic and they say, well, Sunday's the new Sabbath. And if you're not in church every single day, barring stomach virus or COVID-19, if you're not here, then you obviously have a major problem going on with your walk with God. And your church attendance is the most crucial part. I remember precious old ladies in my past telling people in our little churches who had gone wayward, you need to get back in church. You ever had that finger pointed at you? You need to get yourself and your family back in church. Now, the older I get, the more I realize I don't disagree with the command to be in church and I believe their motives were pure but if just getting back in church is the goal then we do nothing more than the Pharisees did we reduce this experience to ritualistic obligation and so let me end after walking through this text with what will be the rest of the sermon Sabbath clarity I want you to take the principle of the Sabbath and apply it to your life in a biblical way that honors the correct way to interpret Scripture. Now, to do this, we need to lay out two important truths about the Sabbath for the Christian. First, biblically speaking, the Sabbath is a person. The Sabbath is a person. Now, here's what I mean. Everything in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of Christ. Everything. There's a theologian, it's really important. His name is Augustine. He said, in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. And in the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. Everything about the Old Testament is pointing toward a needed Messiah. Every portion of the law. And every portion of the law laid out 
the unrighteousness of people and the holy standard of God. If you've ever read the law, perhaps you've read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you're you're usually overwhelmed by the specificity and all the details of keeping the law. It seems to be an overtly heavy burden impossible for anyone to maintain. And it is, and it was, and that's by design. When God gave the law to his people, he was calling them out in two ways. One, he was showing his absolute supreme holiness. He would not negotiate with the standards of this broken world. And he was also showing us our utter need for someone to come on our behalf. In fact, the scriptures show us time and time again that one of Jesus' greatest points of conflict with the Pharisees was over the Sabbath. In fact, in the book of Matthew, there's this event that happens where the disciples are walking through a field on Saturday and they're hungry. And they pick the tops of the wheat off and begin to eat. It's the first grain Nola bar. See, I couldn't tell that when you weren't here live. I'd have no idea if any of you were listening. Our online audience probably went down 32% with that amount of cheesiness. But they were picking heads of the wheat and eating them. And the Pharisee says, aha, we got them. Look what they're doing. They're picking, harvesting on the Sabbath. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. The temple sort of represented all of the rituals and all of the law. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus would say elsewhere, the Sabbath is for man and man is not for the Sabbath. Now something fascinating happened in Matthew. In the book of Matthew, just before the 12th chapter, you know what Jesus says to end the 11th chapter? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What was the purpose of the Sabbath? To rest. Jesus is saying, I'm the Sabbath. I'm the one who has come to complete all the law. Many Christians have been misguided by the Old Testament because someone in your life has chosen, picked, cherry-picked a particular law in the Old Testament and tried to apply it to your life. What we have to do is be very careful about that because Jesus came to fulfill all the law. And because he came to fulfill all the law, the requirements of the law are met in Christ, which means that when I am in Christ, I recognize my Sabbath is in him, not in the day of the week. Paul probably said it best in the book of Colossians when he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I've joked a little bit with our online audience, but there's no doubt. We know because they email us. Some of you are watching online today from a break room and a job you have to be at to provide for your family. There are certain jobs I want people at today. I need to know, heaven forbid, if any of you are in an accident, that the emergency room is staffed with people who know what to do. I need to know that if we lost electricity to this building, that utility companies can scramble men who can be here and know what to do. If we want to boil it down to the very basics, someone is working, taking care of your bad kids so you can sit in this service and listen to this sermon. 
And they're doing all they can with goldfish and Jesus and goldfish and goldfish. So there's obviously, obviously, Paul is saying, because of Christ, the law is fulfilled. And because the law is fulfilled, we find our rest, our Sabbath rest in him. Probably the greatest two chapters on this in the entire New Testament is the writer of Hebrews. And in the writer of Hebrews, more specifically in chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, when he's encouraging people to follow Jesus, he says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The writer of Hebrews, New Testament, New Covenant, Jesus has come, lived, died, and resurrected. He's saying, there's still a Sabbath rest. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sword of disobedience. He's saying, get to Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Take your confidence in the finished work of Christ. Don't allow someone with legalistic tendencies to take the Old Testament law and misapply it to your lives. The fulfillment of the law is in Christ. But Christ said, I, I did not come to cancel, do away with. I came to complete the law. Sabbath for a Christian is a person. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Pastor, are you trying to say that all my life, when I was taught about the Sabbath and how as a Christian now, we use Sunday as our Sabbath, that that was wrong, that that was a misapplication? Absolutely not. But it has to be built on the foundation that all of the law in the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ. And this matters in how we apply it. Not whether or not we apply it, but how we apply it. See, I don't live by the law of the Old Testament Number one, because Jesus kept it all, completed it, and fulfilled its purpose. But number two, I don't have to earn God's love and forgiveness, nor can I work toward the righteousness he requires. That's been accomplished in Christ, which is why the writer says, let us therefore strive to enter that work, uh -uh, that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience what was the disobedience they were falling into they were running after earning the God's love instead of resting in it Sabbath is a person well if the Sabbath is a person then building off that the Sabbath then becomes a principle of our lives and this is how we apply the Old Testament law did you know that when you hold your Bible whether you have an app with a, uh, a Bible on a Bible app or you have a printed copy as I prefer to bring to church the book of Leviticus is just as inspired as the book of Romans. The book of John is just as much inspired as the book of Deuteronomy. We're not allowed to ignore the Old Testament. I've heard Christians say, well, I don't fool with the Old Testament. It scares me and I don't understand it. And I recognize <clears throat> that it can be intimidating and that <clears throat> it is more difficult. It's one of the reasons why I've not shied away from preaching through books like Jeremiah for 234 months. But the, the thing is, what we recognize is that the books of the Old Testament are applicable to our lives as long as we interpret them and apply them looking through the finished work of Christ. If that is the case, then we take our cues from the early church. You realize all the first Christians were Jewish. They did not see Christianity as a new religion. 
they saw Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In fact, their Judaism became high definition. So they did not abandon the practice of setting aside a day for worship, for rest, to be together. But to commemorate the day Jesus rose from the dead, they begin to worship and gather for prayer and fellowship on the first day of the week. It is incorrect to teach that Sunday is now the Sabbath. It is correct to teach that the first believers took the principle of the Sabbath, choosing one day for worship, for rest, for family, for focus on one another, to love, to serve, to do God's work, to take that principle and apply it to the Lord's day. About six years ago, I went through the most difficult year of my life in ministry, 2015. Simultaneously, I was serving as a trustee on the board of directors for the seminary that I graduated from, the, the first time, New Orleans uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. One of the professors at the seminary had a secret sin life. No one knew about it. He hid it. And I don't know if you remember the adult dating site um, uh, Ashley Mattis, but that site was set out and it was revealed that people, could, their accounts were broken. And when their accounts were broken open, this professor had set up a, a, a link to try to meet women. There was no evidence that he had ever done it, but if you're an ordained pastor, you have no business on an adult dating site, and you certainly have no business putting yourself in a position online for anything like that. When it broke, he walked out of the administrative offices where his uh, uh, office was, went to his home, and killed himself. I showed up for a meeting, and we were in a discussion about how do we help the professors and the seminary family deal with this. Anybody, it doesn't matter who, it's secret sin kills. This is not even a sermon on secret sin, but I just want to tell you, it kills. The reason God hates sin so much is because he knows what he does to you. You cannot negotiate with it. <clears throat> you can't compartmentalize it. If there's sin in your life you're not dealing with, I promise you, it will grow faster than you could ever imagine. You know what preachers say. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. It's the reason why today's the day to repent of anything in your life that doesn't honor the Lord. He obviously didn't repent of this area, and he took his life. In the midst of that, the counseling department at the seminary had every professor, every administrative assistant, every member of the administration and faculty read this book by Pete Scazzaro called The Emotionally Healthy Leader. I was interested in this, not because I was going through anything like that, but because of some things going on in my own life and ministry. So I bought the book and I read it. Top five books of my life. Top five. I immediately bought a copy for every member of our staff and we read it together. And, and, and the reason is, is uh, Pete, who was a mega church pastor, uh, did not have a moral failure. He's still in ministry, but he burned out. He ended up exhausted and stepping away from ministry and when he got well, he asked the question, how did this happen? And he realized that many, many pastors preach on spiritual health and many churches emphasize spiritual growth, but we're not doing a good job of helping people recognize the connection between spiritual health and emotional health. And he set out on a journey to ask the question, what was wrong with me emotionally that I burned out of the one thing God had called me to do? The timing of this book was so important for me and for our team as we 
charted a new course and cast a new vision for the direction of our church, it became a book that I, I, I promise you today is top five of my life. Interestingly, the section of the book that racked us the most was when he began to deal with the fact that most ministers have no Sabbath in their life and most of our lay people follow their example. We have gutted the significance of the Sabbath to did I make the 11 o'clock service on Sunday? And if I can check that off, then God's happy with me and I go about filling my week and my days with obligation after obligation after obligation, chasing the next dollar, the next post, the next pick, the next experience. And we wonder why we are the wealthiest civilization that has ever existed. If you own more than two pairs of shoes, you are wealthier than the vast majority of the world. If you have a mortgage, not that you've paid your house off, if you have a mortgage, you're in the top 5% of the wealthiest people in the world. So we know we're the wealthiest civilization that has ever existed. And yet, all you have to do is Google it. There has never been more prescriptions given out for anxiety and depression in the history of the world than in the United States of America today. So as our wealth has increased, as our busyness and experiences have gone through the roof, as we have become more digitally connected to every single headline that could ever exist, so too is our depression, our anxiety, our fear. And when you drop a pandemic on it, you see why people are struggling and society begins to come apart at the seams. And it really bothered me that I had never unpacked what Sabbath truly meant. I don't think it's the only way to define it, but Scazzaro defines it this way. Sabbath is a day in which we stop work, enjoy rest, practice delight, and contemplate God. I think it's interesting that nowhere in his definition is attend church. You may say, is it wrong to think about today as your Sabbath? Absolutely not. Here's the reason why. When you pause and you enjoy rest, and you contemplate on the Lord, coming to church becomes the lowest hanging fruit. It's just obviously a part of your Sabbath experience. See, so often we set the bar so low that we've equated getting to church on time as honoring the Sabbath. Yet for the Sabbath in the Old Testament and the principle in the New Testament, if my rest is fully found in Jesus, I don't have to go to church because he's fulfilled the law of the Sabbath. I want to go, and I want to obey his word, which says in the New Testament, do not forsake the gathering together as some in their habit are doing, but all the more encourage one another as you see the day approaching, Hebrews chapter 10. And so when we think about Sabbath in that way, it becomes a discipline of our life. Now, again, one of the things that I've learned in my own spiritual journey is that discipline so often when I was a young Christian was associated with punishment. Discipline does involve punishment. If you want to discipline your children, part of that will be punishment. You may ground them. You may take away a privilege. You may spank them. But discipline in and of itself is not always punishment, and most of the time it's not. For example, when you are studying with your child who cannot spell for their spelling test, you are trying to discipline them 
and their mind so that they can pass the test. And what's the goal? To pass the test? No, that's not the goal. Remember, parents, if you ever get discouraged studying with children, here's the goal. All your hopes in them when you get old. You need them to be gainfully employed. You need at least one of them to make it. So keep studying. This is about your life. It's hanging in the balance. Why do we do that? Why do we put them through the rigors of spelling tests? Why do we take them to orthodontists and have painful braces put on their teeth and constrict them? It's not punishment. We're disciplining their bite because we want them to have a presentable and functional mouth. This is why we do it. So we understand discipline that way. We understand discipline in their bodies. If you've ever grown a muscle, it's because you've disciplined yourself to work out. If you've ever grown a business, when you weren't making money, you disciplined yourself to show up every day, put on your work boots, pick up your lunch pail, and go to work. You discipline yourself to do that. We have gutted the Sabbath as a discipline. How is it a discipline? Well, let me give you a couple real quick to think about. It is a discipline of devotion. When we discipline ourselves to Sabbath, to choose a day where we focus on the Lord, where we say no to other obligations, where we reprioritize our families, where we find our way into a place of worship, where we rest, where we contemplate on the goodness of God, we're saying to God, I love you. I love you. Some of you cannot wait till next month. I know what's going to happen next month. As soon as school's out, many of you will take that first trip of the summer. By the way, I think you should. You're always happier when you come back, a little tan. You've eaten some shrimp, had a little time. Let mama lay on the beach. She's better for it. Let her. She needs it. It's been two years. I'm not against the vacation. But, but, but you know why you never have to get told to dream about going to your happy place? You don't have to get told about thinking about a camping trip or going to the beach or going to the mountains because you love those places. You love the giggles of the children playing in the sand. You love the hikes, the early morning sunrise. You love those places. And so you make time for those places. You devote days of your life to pursue the things that you love. Now, when you unpack the Sabbath way back from the beginning, what God is saying is, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God, and I want you to love me. This is not a burden. In fact, what is the Sabbath? Stop the burden. Stop the work. Hit pause on the chaos and rest in me. The discipline of devotion is followed by the discipline of dependence. I have a friend I play football with at Auburn. He went on to the city of Miami and has launched successful gyms. He's a personal trainer to many celebrities and NBA and NFL players. He looks like a Greek god. His muscles have muscles. And he's my age. The truth is, you want your trainer to look good. It's like the girl that does your hair. You want her to have nice hair. Or the person that cooks, you want him to be fat. You know? And so, and so I expect him to look that way, and he does. We're not close. We just stay connected on social media. But when he posts a picture of him lifting weights with his shirt off, I mean, he's got it going on. He has this phrase, and he's trademarked it, and now he's growing gyms, and you can buy a franchise from him. It says, no days off. And every trainer I've ever known and every coach I've ever known has always said something like that. We don't take a day off. No days off. I remember my lecture when I was a football coach to a young man who would say, 
Coach, I'm going to miss practice tomorrow. I'd say, you can't miss practice. Because when you miss practice, you're going to get two practices behind. I'm going to go miss two practices behind, Coach. Here's how. One, you're missing your practice. And two, the young man at the north end of the county you're going to face Friday night gets a practice. You can't ever catch him. He's made one. You've missed one. That's two. You're off by two. Be here tomorrow. This was my speech. And we know in athletics and in discipline and in the discipline of business that we need that. I recognize that. But Sabbath is different. We live in a go, 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 hustle, hustle world, and God's saying, stop. Even the days you do work, it's by my grace that you work. When you stop working, you're saying, I trust a God who's working on my behalf. I can only do so much. I am limited in what I can do, and I'm limited in my tank. I see so many women in our church struggle with exhaustion because they create an unbiblical perspective of what they're supposed to accomplish both as a mother, a wife, and a professional. And one of the things they often say to me in the privacy of counseling is not that they don't love their husband and not that they don't love their children and not that they don't enjoy their job. They are exhausted. There is no rhythm of recognizing you are limited And by discipline, you say, there's going to be a day in my week where I establish the rhythm of rest because my bucket leaks and I need the Lord to fill me up. I trust you more than I trust my ability to go be a goal slayer or buy into some other superficial motivational jargon that people sell their lives to. I trust you. There's one more discipline. The discipline of difference. You ever told your children when you got saved? I hope you have. I know many of you say, Pastor, I don't talk about stuff like that the way you do. I get that. But if you have a grandchild and you know the Lord, you ought to tell them how you came to know the Lord. If you have children, you ought to tell them. But you know what else? Every Saturday when you say, no, 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 we, we can't do that tomorrow. We're going to church. We're going to be together as a family. We're going to focus on the Lord. You're retelling that story. You're saying, my salvation son or daughter was not that one-time event. That was when I met Jesus. But he's been so good this week, Monday through Saturday. I want to go celebrate him on Sunday. And when you have the discipline of different, your family looks different. There's stuff your children can't be a part of. Can I just tell you that when they're faced with temptation as a 19, 20, 21-year-old, it won't be some trophy or ring that stops them from making a bad decision. It won't be some athletic scholarship or artistic scholarship. I watch families sell their souls to chasing their own dreams through their children, and their children become moralists, which means they acknowledge the God of the Bible and attempt to live by your morals until they're out from under the blanket of your faith, and then they begin to run after the world. Do you know how to raise a moralist? I'll tell you how. Equate your spirituality to attending church when it's convenient. But show me a mother who's in love with Jesus with all of her heart. I'll show you a woman who'll never struggle to guide her children to make Sabbath a priority. Show me a man who loves Jesus more than his boat, more than his second home, more than his son's baseball career. I'll show you a man who will say to his sons, We are going to Sabbath together. And again, this is not about legalistic 
regulation. It's not about never missing a church service. It's about the rhythm of your life. And this goes all the way back to what God said in the book of Exodus. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Sitting in my desk backstage, I can see the back parking lot. I know who you are. It came in 1115. I'm glad you're here. But two of the most precious sights I see is when a car backs in and a little feeble old man gets out. His Bible's about all he can carry. And he goes around the car and he opens the door and a feeble, precious old lady gets out. And they navigate the curb. A lot of times he'll grab the side of his vehicle in order to make the six-inch step onto the curb. And then they find their way around to our senior adult hall. Or it's a family that pulls up and a side door slides open. And little demons just pile out. <laughs> they just keep coming out. And I don't know if you've ever seen a chicken chasing her chicks. They sort of herd them toward. A lot of times the parking team will get involved and we sort of herd them toward the place where you can dump them on someone else for a while and act like you don't know what's about to happen in that classroom. Can't control them at your house. Why do you expect them to? You know, there's a thousand reasons why that young couple could have said, we're not fooling with this. We can throw the kids in the bonus room and we can watch Pastor DJ online. There's a thousands of reasons why that little old couple will say, you know what, even though we've gotten our vaccination, we're not going to do this. We don't move as much as we do anymore or can anymore. And yet, week in and week out, hundreds of people, they may never know this, Set him out there, preparing to preach. I'll watch what preaches to me. It blesses my heart. If you ever reduce Christianity to showing up at church, then you've done what the Pharisees did. But when your Sabbath is in Christ, you automatically carve a day out to focus on the Lord we give everything a day off day play day fish day hunt day work day me day you day happy day birthday holiday let's give him his day he so deserves it let's pray